Friends, please open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 27 through Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. We'll be focusing in on Philippians 2, verse 1 through 4. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27. By God's uh, providence, our psalm for this evening, Psalm 122, has a lot to do with what we'll be studying this evening, the unity of the church of God. Hear then the word of the Lord, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 for our passage this evening. Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, let's pray. Lord God, we pray this evening that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears, our eyes. That we would see the truth of Your Word. That we would hear its truth. That more than that, Lord, we would take it in. That it would become a part of us. That we would know Your Word deep in our hearts and that our our lives would be actions glorifying You. Actions which demonstrate this word which you have for us this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In war, it is a general principle that an army must work together. If there were no unity in an army, all would be chaos, and you would find very quickly that army would not survive. Not only would they find themselves poorly fighting the enemy, but they would be very quickly destroyed from the inside out. Centuries ago, this working together, this unity was a very obvious thing. People stood shoulder to shoulder, protecting each other. Every soldier knew that in order to remain safe, he needed to stay together with the rest of the soldiers. That's why centuries ago, it was very common for people to march in formation. They knew that the person at their side was the one protecting them. That if they broke and ran, it didn't just mean one person running, but rather the danger of the whole group of people, the whole group of soldiers. Even today, although things have changed quite a bit over the centuries, even today in war, every soldier knows they need to operate together. They face an enemy, and unless they are united in everything they do, unless they know what's going on and they have that single strategy and that single plan, well, they face an enemy. They'll find themselves overwhelmed if they are not united. Well, congregation the people of Philippi were in a very difficult situation. They faced opposition and persecution as Christians. The first few verses of, or excuse me, the last few verses of chapter 1 show this to us, that there were those who opposed the Philippians. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Against the Gospel. They were, these Philippians, in some regard, soldiers facing opponents. And they knew, as Paul says in verse 29, for you it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Congregation, in the many centuries between Paul's writing of this letter and our day, nothing has changed. The the world outside still hates Christ. And more than that, we as a church cannot and will not remain or endure if we are not united. For this reason, Paul wants the Philippians and wants us to be united, to be built together as a church. And there are two things that Paul really wants to to see here, and two things we'll explore in our evening's passage. First, Paul wishes to see, and God wants to see, unity in our thoughts. And second, he wishes to see unity in our attitudes. Unity in our thoughts and unity in our attitudes. In the first place, congregation, God commands us to have unity in our thoughts. Notice that Paul notes at the very outset of our passage this evening that there is already a great love between the Christians in Philippi. Look with me at verse 1. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, friends, Paul writes this first verse as a conditional statement. If there is any. 
But even though he says, if there is any love, peace, etc., well, nonetheless, he takes it for granted that there is true love and great love between them. He himself notes this earlier on in the book in chapter 1, verse 5. He speaks, he says, because of your partnership, your communion, your fellowship, in chapter 1, verse 5, in the Gospel from the first day until now. Not only that, but a little later in the book of Philippians, Paul himself will recognize that the Philippians care for him such that they've been sending him money to support him while he's in prison. So Paul knows that there is love between them. After all, this is part of the church of Christ. These are a people that are bought with the blood of Christ. These are a people who have been united by the Holy Spirit. No true Christian can be without love for his fellow believers. On the other hand, by the way, congregation, there can be no true unity without Christ. Verse 1 speaks of encouragement in Christ. Comfort from love. Some commentators believe this comfort to be speaking of the love of God the Father. Participation in the Spirit. You don't have these things without the church. So Paul recognizes and knows, even though he's speaking hypothetically or conditionally here, he knows that they love each other. What Paul is doing here is kind of like what a mother does when she says to her children, if you love me, help me clean the house. She knows that her children love her. She's seen the love that her children have for her. She wants to see that love expressed. In the same way, Paul has seen some love in the way that the Philippians have acted, but at the same time, he wishes to see the love of the Philippians expressed in the way that they live. After all, there is some dissension in the church of Philippi. The people of Philippi love each other, yet it is clear that there are some divisions. In chapter 4, Paul himself will speak of two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who are in disagreement over something. And the fact that Paul has heard about this disagreement indicates it was probably a very serious one. Because, well, when you have two people arguing and Paul hundreds of miles away hears about it, it's probably gotten to be a pretty big matter. For this reason, Paul wants to see the love of the Philippians expressed. He wants to see the love that they have shown in their lives and growing. He wants to see the same love that he knows exists be demonstrated in their unity. He's like a gardener who's happy to see that the seeds he's planted are growing, but he's not content to see those seedlings remain where they are. He wants to see these seeds continue to grow and thrive. I planted a garden recently and and I was astounded to watch these small plants begin to grow and yet I can't help but every day go out there and, and they've only grown a little bit. But I want to see them grow and grow further and further. And that's what Paul is, Paul is desiring to see here. 
he sees the love of the Philippians, but he wants more. So he commands them to be united. He says, fulfill my joy. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than than yourselves. Verse 2, especially congregation. Let's break this down for a moment. First, he commands them to think the same. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And just a little bit later, he says, complete my joy by being of one mind. He wants them to have the same doctrine, the same way of thinking, the same considerations for each other, especially concerning the truths of the faith. Now, Paul is not saying that these people have to think exactly the same in every situation. He is not arguing to them that they need to have the same thoughts in every single matter. How do I know this? In verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, "...let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ." He says, "...with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel." Paul seeks the same thing here. That we would be united in mind in all that concerns the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would together confess the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died. That Jesus is risen. That Jesus is coming again. That we are sinners. That Christ is a great Savior. Paul commands them to think the same. But second, he encourages them to feel the same. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. He's already spoken of the fact that there's some love among them earlier on in the book, but here he wants them to be united in love for each other and their love for Christ. He wants them emotionally to be together. Not only to be confessing the same thing, but to love each other. To care for each other truly. Third, he encourages them to be of one accord. He says, have the same love being in full accord. The Greek word used here literally means that they are to have a united soul. One commentator even translates this word as soulmates. That these people are to be so closely tied that they are as if they are bound together in soul. Their unity shouldn't be only something uh, doctrinal. It shouldn't be simply an emotional unity, but it should also be a, a deeper unity than that. I don't know if any of you have read the book Anne of Green Gables. If you haven't, it's a wonderful book. It's a very, very funny book. It's a lovely book. But Anne of Green Gables always speaks of her friends as kindred spirits. Not to compare exactly what Paul is saying here with Anne of Green Gables, but in some way, yes, you should be as kindred spirits with one another, says Paul. That's the sort of thing Paul is aiming at. 
Ultimately, what he wants from them in these first two verses is a unity on the inside. He wants their emotions to be in line. He wants their thoughts, their attitudes, their doctrines, their aims, their hopes and goals to be, to be together, to be in line, to be united. Now friends, unity is often something which is done grudgingly. It's often something which is only external. We come in the doors of the church, we shake someone's hand, we say, how are you doing to get today? We don't really care how they're doing. Paul doesn't want that. Paul wants something more. He wants their unity not to be something that's outside in, but something that begins in the inside, that has its basis in the love of Christ, in what Christ has done for them, as he says in verse 1, and that is worked out in the way they think, in their emotions. Friends, let's apply this to our own lives for a moment. You have certainly in many ways, true love and joy among yourselves. I don't know you all well as a church. I know a few of you. And I can't read your hearts furthermore, but nonetheless, I believe that if you are a true church of Christ, you cannot be without love. And I have seen in those of you that I know love that you have for the brothers and the sisters in Christ. That you love one another. And care for one another. I'm not saying this church is is perfect or that your love is perfect, but nonetheless, this love is something that people can, I believe, see when they walk through this door. You should be encouraged in that, friends. When you see the unity that you do have and the love that you do have, you should be encouraged in that. You should rejoice that God has united you to Himself and by Him that you're united united to each other. There are a lot of places where members of the church hardly speak to each other. and So friends, you should be encouraged at the love that you do have. But despite this, in every church, and certainly in this church as well, There are also some dissensions, some quarrels, serious heartbreaks. There are places where disagreement has become a sore wound. We don't talk about it because it's awkward or it's uncomfortable, but there are people who don't want to speak to each other, try to avoid each other, or at the very best, tolerate each other because they feel like there's some sort of disagreement or because they dislike the other person's character. Many of you have certainly been hurt by other people in this church in one point or another. I don't need to point out individual circumstances. I don't know the individual circumstances, but I'm certain that every one of you can think of some. So while love certainly exists in this congregation, friends, we shouldn't be content to lay back and say that we're doing all right. We shouldn't be content with what we have, the love that we have. Rather, it should be our earnest desire and joy to have more love, to be more united. Elsewhere, Paul says, owe no one anything except to love one another. Where that love exists, we have a duty to encourage it. 
It should be the basis for our unity. And where that love doesn't exist, friends, we should be praying to God that He would give us that love. To draw some practical helps from Paul's commands here, Paul says that we should think the same. That we should be of the same thought. He's not arguing here we ought to be agreed on every single matter of doctrine. It's unfortunately a common misconception that unity simply simply means we need to agree on everything. That's not what Paul's saying. But what he is saying, however, what he has already said in chapter 1, verse 27, is that we should strive together for the defense of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In this matter, in the Gospel, God calls us to be of one voice. Other matters may be serious, and at times other matters need to be addressed, but friends, they are not of first importance compared to the Gospel. We are called to be of one mind. To think the same. To be united in the Gospel. Again, Paul says that we ought to feel the same. To have the same love for one another. This This is to say, friends, your unity shouldn't be some grudging acceptance of other Christians. You have no right to hate other believers. In the long run, there's no such thing as indifference either. Look around you, friends, at the people sitting in the pews around you. These people, if they are truly redeemed in Jesus Christ, will one day with you be seated at the feet of Jesus Christ. You have, according to chapter, or according to verse 1 here, encouragement in Christ, comfort in love, participation in the Spirit. You have no right to simply tolerate another believer. You'll be spending an eternity with them one day, so you'd best learn to love them now. Paul says, too, we ought to be of the same soul. One commentator puts it this way, he says, it's as if Paul is saying, it's not enough to agree with each other theologically. God actually calls you to care for one another deeply in a love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of perspective cannot pull you apart. What about you, friend? Yes, there will be different theological opinions among the saints. Sometimes there will be serious differences. Yes, there will be character flaws among the saints. If you don't believe that, look at your own heart. I'm not speaking to you alone, congregation. I'm speaking to myself. I find it so easy to let theological matters or or matters of character split me apart from other Christians. But Paul... And God, through Paul this evening, commands us to true unity. It doesn't mean these differences disappear. It means these differences become inconsequential. That means, friend, where you find hatred of other believers in your heart, stamp it out. When you find uh, disagreements, let them rather fall apart then let your love fall apart. When you find any sort of of hatred or any sort of discord amongst yourselves, let it fall by the wayside. 
Rather, humble yourself. Go to that person. Seek true love. A love that's to be found in Christ. In the second place, however, congregation, Paul speaks here of a unity in our attitudes. A unity in our attitudes, brothers and sisters. Paul commands the Philippians toward inward unity, but he also wants this unity to be worked outwardly in their attitudes, in the way they approach what they do. And he addresses these two major thoughts in verse 3 and 4. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The very first thing that Paul wants us to see in the Philippians' actions and their, in their attitudes is he wants to see humility. Among the Philippians, he sees some uh, remnants of, of selfish ambition, of vain conceit. He sees they're looking for their own ends, for people to praise them, to follow them, to look to them. But on the contrary, friends, God would have the Philippians and us to be humble, to leave behind our pride, our self-seeking, to forget our place and our honors in the world. And in our passage, Paul explains what this humility looks like immediately. They're to consider others as more important than themselves. They're to put others first. To lift them up. To look to honor them instead of each person trying to gain the upper hand. Instead of trying to become the most honored. Now friends, only a few verses after this, in verse 5-11, through 11, Paul lifts up Christ to them as an example of what humility looks like. So friend, look at Jesus Christ for a moment. Consider the humility that was in His heart. He who deigned to come among us, to walk among us, to teach for some three years, who lived with us for some 33 or so years, sinful people though we be. Think of how Christ took our infirmities upon us. How His care was for us. How even in the last moments as He prepared for the cross, He was speaking to His disciples. And John chapter 13 says that He loved them until the end. And John, excuse me, Jesus Himself speaks to the disciples about humility and He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He says, when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul likewise says in, in, uh, excuse me, in Ephesians 4, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness, humility, and gentleness. With long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, God calls us to humility. But in the second place, friends, Paul wants us to see demonstrating unity, or wants to see us demonstrating unity in our care for one another. 
Here, too, he immediately explains what that looks like. He says we ought not only to look after our own needs, but also for the needs of others. This is the fulfillment of the second great commandment, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, friends, there are few commandments in Scripture that are simpler than these. Be humble. Care for others. There are few commandments that can be summed up so succinctly. These aren't complex, difficult commands, at least to hear. But even so, I think these are some of the hardest commands in Scripture to follow. Even when redeemed, we are fallen sinners tending towards self-confidence, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, pride, and arrogance. From these sins of the heart spring forth disunity and dissension. So examine your hearts again, friends. When dissension arises, are you humble? And look at the way you live your lives. When, when disunity arrives, are you humble? Or are you looking out for your own gain? Are you looking for others to notice you? What about those of you who are at the center of divisions or disunity? Ask yourselves truly if the thing causing this division is rooted in a self-sacrificing heart or in a self-seeking heart. Brothers and sisters, there are many people who, who start a fight in a church under beautiful pretenses. There are countless examples of of people who divide the church under claims of being doctrinally pure or holy people. There are people who, who won't speak to another person because they have true grievances they believe with this other person. These people pretend to be watching out for the good and the health of the church. They pretend to be concerned over the state of the bride of Christ. Perhaps they even believe it to some regard. But friends, at the end of the day, all of it is, is pretense. When you look at countless doctrinal disagreements, countless arguments that arise in the church, so often those arguments are driven by pride. I'm not speaking about actual doctrinal disagreements, serious doctrinal disagreements here. Those exist too. And there are times when when the bride of Christ, to put it one way, requires surgery. But I'm not speaking about that here. There are countless times, rather, where a minor doctrinal or practical issue becomes blown out of proportion because the person causing the division is proud and looking to put themselves before others. So friend, if you would divide the church, listen to me carefully. If you would create dissension and hatred in God's people, you'd better be certain you're doing it from a Christ-like heart in submission to Him. Putting others as more important than yourself. Paul says in Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine for which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, 
and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Friends, God wants us to be humble. And if dissension arises because of pride, we have a duty to repent. Likewise, friends, if you find dissension in the church, do not look at those people with anger. If there is some form of disunity in the church and someone's causing it, don't look at that person with hatred. Look rather to them with pity. This is Christ's church that He's seeking to divide. This is Christ's church that they're bringing disunity to. Pray for them. Don't hate them. Continuing, friends, God does not only want us to be humble, but He also wants us to look out for everyone else's interests. What about you, friends? Are you looking for everyone else's interests in the church or just for your own? Ask yourself if you are in what you say and do really acting for the blessing of other members of the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so easy for us to feel slighted because someone else is not not looking out for our interests. We say, they didn't even think about me. But friends, what about us? Are we thinking about the other believers in the church? Are we really caring for them? In conclusion, friends, there are times when dissension is necessary for the health of the body of Christ. There are times when the church must, like a surgeon, cut off a cancer. But remember this, dear friend. When you consider causing disunity or when you see disunity in the church, the church is Christ's body. United by Him. United through Him. United for Him. It's united in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. United to God. United to each other. The church is the bride of Christ. Bound to Him by wedding bands. Not wedding bands of perishable things like silver or gold, but a band of the blood of Christ. Worth infinite worlds. Any wounding of the bride of Christ, friends, will not be treated lightly in the final judgment. But rather, look to Christ with joy. As Paul says here, if there is any love, any encouragement in Christ, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Being of the same love. Having the same soul. Look to your hearts then. If Christ is united you to Him, and you have a true love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, let that love be shown by thinking the same thing, confessing the same thing, by being of one soul, and let that love be demonstrated in your attitudes and humility and care for each other. It's a unity that God will bless. Not a superficial unity, but a unity at the end of the day which imitates Jesus Christ. A unity which brings joy to the body of Christ. A unity which binds the people of Christ and the body of Christ all together for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Let's pray to him. Lord God, we come before you this evening and we pray for unity. We pray that you would teach us to rejoice in the gospel. That we would be uh, in Christ and in the word of God and in the, the wonderful truths that you've given us united. That we would be united by your Holy Spirit, brought in by adoption. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us as we grow closer to Christ, to grow closer to each other, to leave behind petty squabbles, to see squabbles as petty, to live in humility and care for each other. Lord, we pray for those who cause disunity. We pray for those who cause offense. We pray that you would give them uh, forgiveness, Lord, and repentance, that they would see the, the love that is so dear and so wonderful that we have in Christ Jesus, that they would set aside pride, that in humility, as Jesus Christ did, they would place others before themselves. For in this all shall know that we are your disciples if we have love for one another. Give us this love. In Jesus' name, amen.